you know, Stalin and the Nazis were these welfare state types. Uh, One of us is a stand-up comic. Can you tell who it is, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Peckerwood Brick. Um. <laughs> but the problem. <laughs> Oh my god, that's like, I could use that to teach the whole arc. Do we have any kind of archaeological evidence, any kind of, any kind of other corroborating evidence? been going on in my life lately um i have had the opportunity now to start playing in the new DD campaign that i mentioned in earlier episodes that was getting started up and um i had forgotten how uh how how smoothly roll 20 can make things go when you choose to use it as a tool um, I'm not getting paid by Roll20 to say this yet, although I realize that might be a direction I need to reach out. Uh, but yeah, it, it went, uh, it, it went very well. Um, differences in DMing style are, are a thing. Um, it took probably an hour and a half for our new, our new, my new partner DM to kind of get his feet under him. But, uh, yeah, we're having a lot of fun and uh, I'm happy to report that's going pretty well. How about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a U.S. history and uh, soon-to-be-done-with-it Latin teacher uh, here up in Northern California uh, at the high school level. Matter of fact, I gave my final Latin lesson uh, last week on uh, Latin conditionals. What's cool is, in English, we have to use tone of voice to to communicate the impossibility of something. Like, look, if you grew wings, you could fly. You know, yeah. absolutely intoning that it's impossible for you to grow wing, wings spontaneously and then immediately be expert enough in flying. But if you punch me, I will punch you, is much more tonally like, that will happen, right? Yeah. In Latin, they do it through the grammar, which is fantastic. Like by tense and by mood, uh, you can get to, oh, they clearly <laughs> mean this sarcastically. Uh, so when Livy writes for three chapters of, what would have happened if Alexander would have turned left instead of right? He's like, well, if he would have turned left, we would have kicked his ass, as in, <laughs> There's no way the dude could have won. Uh, so I gave okay. that last lesson um, nice. the other day. Yeah. Uh, and then tonight, actually, my son and my daughter and I, we all sat down and watched a documentary on cheetahs. Um, as you know, my son loves the animals. Yeah. And uh, afterwards, of course, the cheetah's biggest problem turns out to be humans and yeah. our effect on the environment. And he went to bed uh, kind of depressed. And I said, I'll tell you what, man, why don't you ask your your science teacher, go up to your science teacher on Tuesday and say, hey, um, 
is there any way that, uh, are there any resources you could give me so that I could make it so that humans could be less of assholes to, to nature? And he looked at me, I'm like, okay, don't ask that way. But that, that's <laughs> the specificity of wording is important here. Maybe Probably. don't quote me, but... but at the same time, there's a part of me that really wants him to do that. So, well, yeah, as a middle school teacher, how would you react to that? Um, uh, again, the world's sweetest child. Oh, yeah, as proven by science. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, as, comes as up to you all... and says, yeah. Mr. Blaylock, is there a way that could be we could be less of assholes to each other? What would you do with that? I I would I would assume that that's a, that's that's a phraseology that is that is acceptable in the child's home. Okay. And if it wasn't in open classroom circumstances, now I have more hopes. Uh, yeah. If it was if it was if it was one on one, it'd be like, well, all right. Here's here's some ways we can okay. be less that way. If it was in open court, as yes. it were, there'd have to be a moment of. Well, let's let's watch our phrasing about that one a little bit because you know we're in school and we need to use more academic, academic voice, language yeah. than that. But okay, and that and that'd be about it. Like okay. I'm I'm only I'm only, I'm really only going to ding a kid for for that kind of language if they're using it as a weapon against another kid. Sure, you know okay. if they're calling another kid an asshole. Gotcha. All right, you know, but pull it back. Yeah, yeah. I had a kid ask me uh, just before the <laughs> pandemic when I did my lecture on the the British East Indies Company. So, so really, these people are assholes. Like, exactly, exactly. You know. Pretty so. much. I'm not allowed to say it that way in front of the room, but yes. Right. Yes. Now I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so, yeah, you, unlike me, have permanent status. So Also true. You know. Also true. Uh, so we have in here, actually, with us a guest uh, who very politely has just been kind of nodding at our stupidity. Uh, we have <laughs> a gentleman I used to work with a thousand years ago, uh, but now has gone on to do great things. He's got his own podcast. Oh, also, he's uh, got an advanced graduate degree. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, here to talk to us tonight about the history of hip hop is Dr. Manuel Rustin. What's going on? What's going on? So happy to be here with y'all. Happy to politely nod my head at um, <laughs> all the cuteness of the middle schoolers and little ones. Um, thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, it's it's been a minute. We started out teaching and that was like... Uh, peak no child left behind oh, early yeah. mid 2000s yeah multiple Small learning communities as a goal yes yes yeah. a yeah. lot a lot but now i'm down here in the los angeles area and i okay. teach ethnic studies and mm -hmm. and let's see i'm teach at the alma mater of jackie robinson and octavia butler and rodney king and a lot of really notable people and i'm loving it it's good to see you nice you too you too well, um, very good to have you here Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. I think last time we talked, it was about union stuff because we were talking about the the discussion to go back and how some unions yeah. were actually keeping students safe. Um, and that was. Uh, yeah. That, that, yeah, I think that, yeah, that that should mark the time for us as far as how long ago that was because we've all been back. Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you, I remember when we taught together, um, uh, there's a student that you taught who then became friends with me as an adult who is now a professional wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so many levels of awesome. He's also been uh, a champion on my pun tournament. Um, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, okay. Yeah. And uh, my daughter 
actually borrowed a phrase from Ed from this podcast to critique uh, his outfit in the ring. She said, wow, that looks like sparkly murder gymnastics. Wow. The result has been uh, he has uh, sparkled up his shoes and he said that has given me a direction to take this character. So there's this real weird vortex going on here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. But uh so he actually went on to do a lot of dj work too uh dj blacklight and his own um he's produced uh his own uh i think two albums as well as uh his own single um that uh is pretty good i've played that for my students a number of times uh but uh he did that partly because he was inspired by a class that you taught at the time which was uh it was it the history of or introduction to hip-hop it was a little bit of all that, um, you know, it started off of we were already making music after school. I had some recording equipment. So um, as advisor for the BSU, uh, our fundraiser at the time was to make, you know, student mixtapes where students were making their own songs and um, selling the CDs as a fundraiser for the Black Student Union. And eventually, I think we had some grants or some some after school thing came mm-hmm. to our campus and they were looking for after school stuff to offer. And I was already doing that, but it needed to be a little more formalized. And um, so it became a class. And I think I called it, no, I don't think I called it hip hop in America. So it was a little bit of studying the history of hip hop and um, also, you know, contributing to the legacy of hip hop by making our own stuff. So, yeah. That's neat. I borrowed that model later on because we had an after school program. At that point, it got turned into something called assets, which is after school safety, educational something or other. I always, if it's more than three letters, I tend to lose uh, most of what what comes at the end, uh, which is funny given my inability to pronounce French. Um, but uh, I did comic books in America, and so taught them, taught them the history of comic books and the theory of comic books. And uh, in 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 a way that, you know, for an after school program, so very much watered yeah. down, you know. Right. Um, but and the the end result was they produced their own comic books. So nice. Yeah. So but we've talked a lot about comic books here. We we actually a while back talked about punk rock here. Um, and I realized there's another type of music that I do not. I honestly don't know much about any other music either come to think of it so we may well have a bluegrass person come on in about you know a month and two months or something but uh because of that i i wanted to bring in people who already have experience teaching about music and so you're here tonight to teach us the history of hip-hop in america presumably so yeah for sure just off that syllabus and uh tell us what you know yeah so i can only assume that this is partially because we are this year celebrating the 50th anniversary of the start of hip hop. Are you talking I, about the New York blackout? Um, well, actually, I mean, that was around the time, but um, yeah. that same year, but, but yeah, this marks 50 years of, of um, hip hop and for there to be like a real definite, like agreed upon start date or start time, really mm-hmm. a start date, like this specific date, August 11th, uh, 1973. Um, Let's us know that something really, really special happened on that one day that is like uh, that had many witnesses, um, mm-hmm. many of whom most of whom are still around to tell about it. And um, that's one really beautiful aspect of of hip hop is like it's so young, like 50 years is I mean, these the folks who made it are still around talking about that that faithful night. So um, seeing how much has happened within the mm-hmm. within the music and in, uh, in 50 years, um, it's really wild. But but yeah, yeah. Um, 
we know where it started. I, I presume when I say we, I mean those of us here um, on this podcast. Um, Please don't presume, not. actually. Yeah, ah, I like that. I like that. So like a good yeah. teacher. So mm -hmm. me being a, you know, 19 year, 20 year uh, classroom vet, uh, mm -hmm. it's important to start with a bit of a pre pre quiz, pre assessment to kind of see where, where folks are at. So An we know that set. Yeah. there we go. So yeah. do we know what city it started in? I'm going to say in one of the five boroughs of New York, okay. because yeah. I connected yes. it to the New York uh, blackout. Oh, on, there you go. on off the top of my head, I want to say Brooklyn, but I could be uh -huh. thinking of run DMC, which is no, but they weren't Brooklyn. I don't know who I'm thinking of, but anyway, right. Yeah, they were Hollis Queens. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a West Coast person. I mean, I know both of y'all work uh, here on the West Coast. So mm -hmm. um, my my New York geography had always been fuzzy until like I really dug deep into hip hop. But it started in the South Bronx. And actually, that's really important because uh, when I teach this to students, part of it is like what happened the night it got invented, so-called, because mm -hmm. like what made it so different than everything else. But also like why the Bronx? Like, who are these folks, these teenagers who created this and how did they end up in that spot? So when I teach this to, to really anybody, uh, you know, I kind of approach it, your Latin teacher, um, what's that story structure where you start like right in the middle of action and then it takes you back to the beginning, like in Medias Res or something like that? Yeah, Before English that. teacher, in Medias Res, yes. There yeah. you go, boom. 100%. So I teach like that. So we start with August 11, 1973, and then we wind it back to the 1950s. Like, how the hell did, did all these folks come to be? So in, in any case, long story short, uh, August 11, 1973, um, teenagers threw a party uh, mm -hmm. to raise some funds for some back-to-school clothes. And this party uh, famously took place at an apartment complex at 15, 1520 Sedgwick Ave, which the city was going to demolish some years back. Um, but folks organized to uh, preserve it as a historical landmark. But in any case, the DJ at that party, uh, his name's Clive Campbell, but folks knew him as Cool Herc, Herc short for Hercules, because he was a pretty uh, pretty buff dude. Um, he was trying hard to be a successful DJ, and this was the disco era. And mm -hmm. like a um, any really anybody who's really trying to master their craft, he really studied the impact that his different records had on the audience and really tried to maximize the peak of the audience's enjoyment. So at the time, um, disco funk records, they would have a breakdown section uh, that like for whatever reason, and I still don't understand why, but the breakdown section where the beat really simplifies and it, it really emphasizes the percussion. Mm -hmm. That's the part that drove everybody wild. So that's the part that had everyone running to the dance floor, doing the wildest moves. And mm -hmm. those breakdown sections usually were pretty short, 15 seconds to maybe a minute tops. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the band comes in and then and all that. And then folks would kind of like chill out. So he noticed that the breakdown was everybody's favorite part. But extending the breakdown, trying to maximize that with a turntable um, is something that he didn't know how to do. No one really knew how to do. So he... um got a second turntable and usually only at that time only like the really big disco clubs had djs that had multiple turntables to like transition between song to song but these little right. um teenage parties like they had one turntable and there'd be a little gap of silence while they you know change the records or whatever so he got a second one and timed it out to be able to take two of the exact same record so mm -hmm. he bought two copies of the exact same song and while one break was happening on one turntable he was timing up that same break to start on the second turntable and switching back and forth. So he called it a his he called it the merry-go-round technique. So what happened is instead of just 
15 to 30 seconds of a breakdown, it could extend for however long he could keep up his his energy to do that. Because so, as as he's got one coming forward, he can pull the other one back to yep. start back up. And, and he's hearing both beats in his ears, so he's able to match them right on the right spot. And then I had a yep. CD skip like this once, and it extended <laughs> a... Uh, uh, a drum solo <laughs> on a nine inch nail song called the perfect drug and it extended it just perfectly for an extra 30 seconds and everybody was like oh my god this is a great cover where'd you find this i'm like i it literally is just scratched but <laughs> nice so but same idea um just mine was purely accidental uh but i'm glad you brought up funk as well because i know that disco was really big in the 1970s but also in that era you had a lot of funk and uh a lot of costumery and things like that um and and i was thinking about how because i always go back to um pro wrestling um how at shea stadium in in uh chicago in the in the mid 1970s where they had also had this this huge and this is several years later um, but they had this huge, uh, 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 a huge match um, where Hogan fought Andre for the first time, um, and body slammed him. Turns out that happened before WrestleMania three. But they had this huge uh, thing at uh, Shea Stadium where they they did the Death of Disco, and it was a a DJ um, from a local radio station in Chicago, and they blew up a bunch of disco records. You see, because they they hated disco and all that. Yeah. And I was like, wow, these Midwesterners really don't like disco. Why is that? And I started looking at like all the pictures and the videos of people dancing disco. And it was, you know, very much influenced by other types of music. And I also noticed that in addition to the massive amounts of cocaine that people were enjoying at the time, um, it was largely queer black and brown music. Um, It was seen as such. And then white people would kind of dip in and dip out probably to do a key bump and then uh then take off again but so i'm noticing uh that you're having these very what's the word i'm looking for uh outwardly and unapologetically uh black and brown musical influences uh coming into play and then as you were saying they were looking to demolish uh, a, a building that later got made into a landmark um at the time of you know massive urban blight uh, was was starting to be a a real term that was being used. We talked about that in the Punisher episode. Yeah. So so it it makes a lot of sense that funk would have also been in there, and you've got that Austin tenacity uh, going on within the music. Ostentatiousness. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And that really stuck around until Run DMC. Run DMC sort of uh, epitomized the stripped down. Yes. Yeah. All mm-hmm. black, just some mm-hmm. Adidas. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, that night, so um, in doing what he did mm-hmm. to largely disco and funk and um, he, people, the young kids, these were all like, you know, 15, 16, 17 year olds. Uh, cool Hark was a little bit older. It was his sister's back to school party. So he was just the DJ for her. But um, they called it breaks. So um, the breakdown was just known as the break. So his beats, his ability to put all these breaks together or to extend a break for however long, um, that became known as a break beat. And the dancers who danced to that were break dancers. And um, which is what made it so special was, I mean, nobody had heard the, these breakdowns extend for so long. So like the 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 way people reacted to it, it was just like their minds were blown to hear this. And on top of that, he was also... Uh, really brilliant curious young person so his his 
his DJ equipment was louder than everybody else's because he took his dad's um, home. Uh, what did they call them back in the day? Like they don't, they didn't call them home Wi-Fi? theater systems at the time, but or like his hi-fi system or his, um, you know, the big, uh, they, they were technically their sure, um, public address, uh, PA columns, but, um, just, you know, the big towers, big tower, these speakers that are like, you know, yeah. four feet mm-hmm. tall or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he took those and, and opened them up and rewired them to get rid of the, the, uh, whatever electronic limitation was, was placed in there. So the speakers wouldn't blow. So his were able to get louder and have more bass. And actually, he picked that up from growing up in Jamaica because he was an immigrant. He came from Jamaica. He had uh, Caribbean roots. And in the Caribbean, a really big part of Caribbean culture are these outdoor parties with booming, booming sound systems. Mm -hmm. So that's what he was used to. So um, the combination of these breakbeats and having the best sounding system on the block or in the neighborhood made these parties like to go to event. But the thing is, it takes a lot of concentration to create a breakbeat, to time it and to keep going back and forth. And there's a whole party going on. So you needed somebody to to manage the crowd some while he was locked into what he was doing with his merry-go-round technique. So his buddy, uh, Coke LaRock, who's um, who was there at that that first time that Cool Herc did this, um, picked up the habit of being on the microphone and uh, speaking to the crowd and and joking with the crowd, calling out his friends, and then putting together these small little rhymes. And eventually that evolves to breakbeats with somebody on a microphone dazzling the crowd. And that is like the creation of hip hop. So the first time that folks witnessed it happen live was August 11th, 1973. Uh, But the next six years after that, it spread like wildfire throughout the Bronx and and folks were having outdoor parties. This this first one was in his apartment complex, but after that, he took it outside, you know, would take over parks, uh, plug the systems into light posts and it just took off, so. So let me let me ask you a, a couple things there. Number one, um, is this where we see the beginning of the MC and the DJ? So you got the master of ceremonies running things on yes. the mic, and then the DJ per- performing the music for you. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. And at the time, it sounds like uh, the the MC was ancillary and supportive to the DJ. It was the music that mattered, not necessarily the lyrics. The lyrics were. Hey, I'm gonna riff right now to keep everybody going. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And there's okay. famously a you know All an right. image that anybody could search up online of like they the party flyer for that particular party it was mm-hmm. a, is on an index card. Uh, you know, it's just scribble scratch. They just took a bunch of index cards and and wrote the information or whatever. And it's a DJ Cool Herc party. And at the bottom, it's like featuring and it has like all his buddies and Coco Rock is one of them. His name is just Coco on that index card. But it took wow. some time before the MC became the the main event it was actually they were behind the dj for for quite a few years wow and then my next question is they've got these parties in in the uh in the park and you said they plugged in how did the municipal authorities react to these i i assume unpermitted parties um i mean was there even an infrastructure yeah (laughs) was there even an infrastructure uh to throw at them uh or or to uh to buy into or like how did how did the municipal authorities respond to this and that's why it's so important that this started in the bronx what the bronx was experiencing in the 70s um is a, a story that goes back to the 40s and 50s but the bronx was um Jeffrey Chang, uh, he was a professor at UC Berkeley um author of can't stop won't stop which is like the definitive history of hip hop mm-hmm. um 
he refers to the Bronx at that time as a necropolis, like a city of death. Like if you Google, oh, if you just Google shit. Bronx in the 1970s, like the mm-hmm. images you see, it, it would it looked like a war zone at the time. Folks were calling it Beirut because I was the big conflict at the time. But, um, mm. uh, you know, and I could I could definitely go into why it was like that. But it was absolutely um, it was absolutely neglected and forgotten and left behind. There's a, a memo um, to Richard Nixon um, basically saying that the efforts that the municipal government and national government were making to try to provide resources for the Bronx, this, that, whatever, um, were too expensive and really weren't making a dent. And if these people in the Bronx are going to destroy their own property and have all this violence anyways, you might as well pool resources. And that was, you know, turned benign neglect. So benignly just neglecting the area and letting it crumble on its own. And on that memo, he writes, you know, his, you see his handwriting, he says, I agree. And then they start shutting down um, fire stations. They shut down uh, seven fire stations, even though the Bronx was suffering from a massive wave of arson. There, uh, some folks... Well, I was, was going to say is it, most of that arson was the owner of those buildings collecting yep. on insurance, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Something like thirty thousand fires over the span of a couple of years when hip hop was was created. Thirty thousand in any city. I know the Bronx is massive. Uh, I know maybe folks don't realize how massive it is. It's massive, but thirty thousand fires set um, largely by by uh, slumlords and other. Uh, real estate investors who would rather collect the insurance money than try to upkeep and actually do right by the people there. Uh, so they would pay local gangs to like go in and, and set these fires. So, um, so yeah, as far as like, you know, someone coming around to say you can't plug in into this freaking light post, man, the block is burning. Like the Bronx is burning. That's, you know, oftentimes this area is this, this time period is referred to as the Bronx is burning. Um, which is based off a of World Series broadcast. There was a Yankee game happening, a uh, World Series, and it, the camera pans out and you can see the Bronx and you see all these fires everywhere. And the announcer, I don't remember who was um, on the call that night, but he says, and the Bronx is burning. So ever since then, it, that era has been known as the Bronx is burning. So and wild, but yeah. That's like what the time you're talking about too is is the, the uh, what's his name? Lindsay and Beam, I think, were the two mayors um, that handed off power, I think, right around... It was probably in December or January of, of that year. Um, but so you've got two mayors who are kind of do-nothings because um, yeah. you, you get basically the LaGuardia era, right? And then you get right. some forgettables where basically the the Port Authority runs the whole city. And uh, God, Moses, <laughs> what's his name? Uh, Robert Moses. Yes. Yeah. Robert Moses just screws everybody out of being able to get to the beach uh, if they're black. And then yeah. by by building bridges lower, like it's straight up just like, oh, make it so the buses can't go there. Um, and then and creates all the uh, all the the subway stuff that we see now, like because they never did anything after that, really. And then and it's right before the Ed Koch era. So yeah. it's like this this era of just like you said, uh, benign neglect. I, I would certainly call it neglect. Uh I don't know. I don't know if I'd qualify it as. I think the people who were doing it wanted to call it benign to try to cover their own cover their own moral failing. But yeah, but they are two of the more forgettable guys when it comes to like you know big city mayor personality types, Um, and they kind of just let the technocrats um, puff up different places. You know, there's a uh, uh, there was a, a, a what do you call it? a real estate developer who is really focusing everybody's attention on Queens and then his son also on Manhattan. 
And, uh, you know, so they got to get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why when I, when I engage students with this learning, that's why we start in, you know, in, at that party, but we wind it back to see how the hell the Bronx got that way in the first place. Like how, how did it get this bad? And how did this room full of, of black Puerto Rican, Jamaican teenagers, mm -hmm. like, you know, what brought them there? Because then if you go even further back and look at what the Bronx looked like, you know, in the twenties and thirties, you see white people right. everywhere. So it's like, okay, how does mm -hmm. none of this is, it doesn't just magically happen. So hip hop is a, is a, a wonderful entryway to try to study like, okay, like what exactly was going on that led to this fateful night. And, you know, so then we wind it back and learn about, you know, Robert Moses and Cross Bronx Expressway and White Flight and, and Levittown and, and racial housing covenants and all the things that segregated, hyper segregated neighborhoods and all that. Right. And then and then we get back to Cool Herc and then we go forward into the 80s when things didn't they didn't get better. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, so spoiler that, alert. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that's got us in 1973. Uh, that's, I believe, the Punisher comes around right around that same time. Where yep. and and you get your uh, your Guardian Angels, I think, get mm. get going as well. Where a lot of people are, you know, we're going to take back this city, and it's like, like I, there's a part of me is like, well, if the police aren't aren't doing what they said that they should do, uh, then perhaps citizens should step up. But it is interesting, specifically, who is doing these things and. And you start to get movies like Death Wish and shit like that, where it's a lot of white rage at what they consider to be the cause of urban blight, which is apparently Jeff Goldblum and uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne um, yeah. wearing half shirts. Yeah. But I'm sorry, I got I got stuck on the image of uh, uh, Goldblum wearing a half shirt. That. Yeah. Well, wait, what? Okay, uh, and it was mesh too. So. Oh, because of course it was, because yeah. this is 78, uh, 77. Yeah. Well, there were, there were so many different. Well, yeah. I mean the death wish films, death wishes, but yeah. yeah. But I think, yeah, the one with, uh, with him was, I think in the late seventies. Yeah. And yeah. then you get dirty Warriors, Harry, right. The TV series or the movie warriors, which was yeah. about the blackout. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, shockingly there's just a, a gang of white guys trying to get get to get home and uh you know the the da the danger of uh baseball clowns so well i mean you can't ever be uh too vigilant about the dangers of baseball clowns That's i true. just want to make sure we all especially understand. the ones on roller skates when they're yes. that mobile terrifying just trying to get to coney island man yeah um. <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh carry us forward uh Tell us more. We'll we'll just interrupt with real non sequiturs that have nothing to do with much of anything. But hey. that, that is when you said long story short, I almost stopped with like, do you know what we do here? <laughs> that is the antithesis. Yeah. I mean, it. there's you know, obviously so much more to it. And you know, Coke Rock takes credit for being the first person to be a, what we consider an MC to, mm -hmm. to create rapping in this style. But there's other folks who say they were the first. And you know, mm -hmm. there's multiple parties happening. And then and then the this that that actual technique, uh, that vocal technique of of spoken word poetry, um, mm -hmm. you know, goes all the way goes way before Cool Herc and and some trace all the way back to Africa and African griots who are the storytellers. Um mm -hmm in oral tradition but in any case so like so for the first like six years 
of its existence, hip hop was, you had to be there to hear it. It was all live performance. They weren't in a studio. They weren't recording none of this in any kind of real way. So you had to be at these parties and um, it's really specific to the Bronx. So even folks right across, right across the water in Queens, they were hearing about this at first, but it was quite a while until they actually experienced it because it was so dangerous. Like the Bronx itself was so dangerous, uh, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood that, um, you know, if you didn't know somebody, it's, you know, similar in a lot of ways to, to parts of L.A. Um, in the 90s. Like if you didn't know somebody from that neighborhood, you weren't going through that neighborhood to get to any party. Like forget about it. Um, so so it took, you know, about six years before it finally was taken into a music studio to be recorded. So for those first six years, the rumors were swirling about this new hip hop stuff. And, you know, people have really low quality um cassette tapes that you know they would try to record the party that's happening and and all that and then uh, so oh, sorry to, sorry to cut you off but uh were they referring to it as hip-hop that early and that's another another part of the story that's like it kind of depends on who you ask um okay. most folks who were actually there weren't calling it hip-hop um the phrase hip hop picked up a lot after the first recording of it because that phrase comes up in the recording so it's one of those things where like maybe it kind of got that official label once it started being commercialized and, and profited off of but yeah the folks at the time they were um i haven't really come across any like single word for what was happening these were okay. cool her parties these were breakbeat parties um certainly folks were calling them hip-hop parties folks were rapping but it wasn't anything like any formal, like that's the one thing that's, that's it right there, especially since it was changing so much, like the, the verses, what the MCs were doing um, mm -hmm. became much more, more and more complex in, in actual groups forming of different MCs who would battle each other and all that. So, um, so yeah. And then somebody thought, huh, cha-ching, there's a way to make money off of this. And um, a record is that um, basically rounded up some, some youngsters from the New York area, uh, area because um, the key guys were actually from New Jersey and wanted to try to create one of these uh, types of songs that she had heard um, her nephew talking about and the first recorded hip hop song you've mm -hmm. definitely heard it you might not know like on a quiz what was the first recorded hip hop song but you might actually you might but mm -hmm. you've definitely heard it um, any guesses I'm gonna say those are the breaks Ah, ah, um, that came soon after, very soon after. Okay. Um, but no, rapper's delight by the Chicago oh, gang. See, I didn't, yeah. I didn't jump in soon enough. That I, was it's what it's a guy with say. a sweater, right, in front of people who are on risers. I've seen a video at least. Uh, he's, he's wearing... There's a couple different videos, and the video, okay. the like music video that I show students is one where they're like at a pool party, uh -huh. and it's like you know DJ set and nobody's dancing on beat it's clear that the models in the video have no idea what's happening they've never heard <laughs> nothing like this they didn't really know what like do you dance to someone like talking on a mic because to them you know, it's just talking in rhyme or whatever it was mm -hmm. very very awkward and hilarious video um nice. but in any case yeah so um so these three teenagers uh, hopped on the most popular breakbeat at the time was mm -hmm. from the song good times um and the the most popular break was from the song good time so they had a band come in and recreate that part of the song and just keep playing it so um this wasn't quite a sample but it mm -hmm. was highly illegal like you know definitely copyright infringement <laughs> or whatever right so the band just played it the same loop same loop and these three teenagers just 
took turns getting on the mic and nobody knew what to do or how to stop back then. These were not hip hop songs. These were parties mm -hmm. events. So the break beats and the performances would go 15, 20, 30 minutes. If you watch the film wild style, which is an early hip hop film that really documents what this looked like, like folks are just rapping to the same beat for a long time. So this, in this, uh, this first, the uncut version of uh, Rapper's Delight is 15 minutes long before they stop. And, you know, of course, then they cut it down to four minutes for the radio. But like, sure. on, you know, on any streaming app, you can play the full 15 minutes. It's a long song and they just keep going and going and going. And um, that hit the airwaves. And, and it was a rap after that. After that, everybody, everybody was wanting to rap. And in it, you know, um, a hip hop to the hippie to the hippie, like right. that hip hop part was one part that people latched onto and um some say that's when it started becoming known as hip-hop more so, formally so because you were also talking you said okay. use the word rap and i remember it as the genre of rap like as i grew yeah. up that was what it was called me too okay yeah. yeah so and and what you're talking about there they weren't they using the baseline from another one bites the dust that it did maybe if done dun 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 dun, dun, dun. So that song, good times, good times, we all have to like whatever. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, yeah. That's the. So I don't know if that sampled that because they definitely okay. sounds hella familiar. But right. But that good time song, okay. that's the one they were trying to recreate. And is that where the TV show got its name? Like, were they just? I don't know. Catching on to the okay, because that's also set in that same area. Okay. Yeah, at yeah, that yeah. Same time. Yeah. So yeah, I would assume so. But yeah, I definitely. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. All right, yeah. so you you've got um like you said, there's this six year gap where nobody records anything. Is this why are they why why aren't they recording it? Is this a a lack of I I can't imagine it's a lack of imagination on the part of the artists on the part of the DJs. Um, that being said, I have certainly squandered and missed opportunities for my pun show to go to the next level because I'm just too focused on you know if you're in the middle of the storm, it's hard to get the weather report. Um, or is this them being frozen out? Right. Um, yeah, that's that's a great question. Part of it is just not having the money or the equipment to even think the thought of like going into a studio, like what okay. you know, hood kids could think about like renting out studio time. Right. Um, okay. But the it's funny because this song like made, I mean, every the Sugar Hill Gang, every one of the last one of them made a fortune off of this, and this is you know even considering that they probably had a really crappy um mm -hmm. um you know exploitative contract, contract. yeah but yeah. you know until they're i mean two of them are still alive one of them passed away but um they're still touring and still making money off of it um even having paid um the original uh folks who who made good times but but in case i say that i would say in the in the actual verses you can see that um one of the one of the rappers big bank hank um didn't write his lyrics he just Grabbed them from a friend who was a really, really good rapper in the Bronx, whose name is uh, Grandmaster Cass, Cass short for Casanova. So in one of the verses, you know, rappers spell their name a lot, just generally speaking in rap music, they spell their name a lot. And this to Big, the that to the this to the that. Yeah. And Big Bank Hank, whose name is Hank, Big Bank for money. Uh, he starts his verse off by spelling out Casanova. Because he stole the freaking lyrics from Grandmaster Casanova. <laughs> uh, and he says Casanova several times in the 15 minute long version. He says Casanova several times. And when at, and so Casanova is furious, furious. I think still to this day, like when you see any documentary where he's in it, 
he's cursing. He's like, these motherfuckers, it's like, yeah. he's furious. Um, but he says at the time, nobody was thinking about, like, they didn't have the, the vision of this being a money-making thing in yeah. that kind of sense. So it was like, oh, I need to borrow some rhymes. Okay, here you go. Here's my rhyme book. Like, it was like, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna be in this photo shoot. Let me borrow that shirt you got. Okay, here's the shirt. Right, bring yeah. it back when no, you're done. That's, that's comedy back in uh, vaudeville. Hey, I'm going to do this routine tonight. Oh, I was going to do that routine. Can you do this other one? Yeah, sure. Like, nobody had, like, their own original claim to things until your monologists kind of get in there and you're, you know, you're all right fine milton like that's great mr burl yeah okay yeah. cool <laughs> exactly um oh that's that's so okay so so there's that six-year gap and people are just picking up what they can along the way um as they go it's nice to hear that they they still made money off of it that's usually not the case yeah. when you're the first person to the to the trough yeah. Uh, usually all the energy goes into the creativity. And I guess in some ways it still did because all the energy went into the creativity of the live parties. And then, I, Ed, does this sound parallel at all to you to what we saw in the New York scene where the punk guy created uh, or the, the uh, or maybe it was in England, I forget, where he created a boy band? Essentially? Oh, yeah. No, it's 110 percent. To exploit the, that? It's the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it, it they're there. You know. It it strikes me that once somebody who's in a position to to make money off of something, mm -hmm. once once the attention gets paid by somebody who's like, hey, wait a minute, hold on, I can make a buck here <laughs> because I'm in a position to invest the money to make a buck. Right. Like, you know, that's that's the point at which things start getting manufactured. Um, so yeah that yeah you're you're not wrong this okay. is definitely yeah definitely like you definitely said, yeah new Rhymes. york kids not not the actual people from the bronx so yeah yeah okay. jersey kids i think two of the three were from jersey um in the sugar hill gang context at least okay um but yeah once it hit the airwaves i mean that was such a major hit mm -hmm. it i mean it was it was over after that. Then people were making hip hop right. music uh, mm -hmm. all around, all around, all around the U.S. for sure, and uh, sure. it spread internationally pretty, uh, pretty quickly. But yeah, it was built off of that first song. That even my my students, I'm like, what's the you know what what do you think? What do you think's the first? Then they can't even think of like conceptualize what the very first raps recorded rap song would be. And then sure. I play it, and they're like, oh, and literally everybody knows that everyone that knows song. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but um, but now yeah. as we approach the 50 year anniversary, it's like the original creators, DJ mm -hmm. Cool Herc. Most people don't know anything about him. He had to do a GoFundMe for to cover some uh, medical bills a couple years ago because he was ill. Coke Rock, one of the first rappers, nobody really knows about him. Grandmaster Cass, who wrote one of the most famous verses on one of the most famous <laughs> songs ever. Nobody knows who the hell he is. We actually so, have in text uh, citation for him. <laughs> like they man. MLA'd him. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> basically, inadvertently spelled his name out. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so, oh, there's 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 a thing I was I was gonna ask. I, it it absolutely slipped my mind because I just realized how funny that was. So uh, yeah. Oh, well, the four I'll, minute I'll... thing. I just sorry. I, I, while the thoughts fresh yeah, in my head, yeah, yeah. the four minute thing. Most music at that time was two and a half, three minutes max. Right. Like, I mean, you see, Bohemian Rhapsody break it open with six minutes, but that's because you know the right. DJ has to go to the bathroom. Like that's when you hear that song. Like most songs right. still, I mean, if you listen to most Doors songs right around that same time, Jimmy gets uh, a, an extra minute or so. Um, but by and large, the four minute mark is still 
kind of top end. Like, you know, yeah. You look, yeah, you look at most songs. So it's interesting that um, it, it already, I mean, it, it's also, it's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Lyrical, lyrically dense, right? You have more words per minute in rap and hip hop than you in most songs. Yeah. And so. most people don't really dig too much into the words being said, but it's a incredibly, incredibly sexist, misogynistic song. And um very nasty if you actually like if you look at the 15 minute version and he mm -hmm. starts talking about super sperm and this and that like it's um it gets pretty explicit and you know i remember being a kid and when gangster rap was well yeah being young and when gangster rap was sort of at its peak and mm -hmm. folks of the older generation telling me like oh you know rap nowadays oh it's just killing and and having sex and this and that like back in the day they used to rap really rap about something and, you know, as I grew older, it's like, wait, the, the very first song was just womanizing. Like, you know, if, <laughs> if your girl starts acting up and then you take her friend, it's like, what the hell? Like, you know, it's just it started out as party music. It started uh -huh. out bragging, braggadocio, trying to get girls. It's teenage dudes making this music. And right. it sounds like some teenage dudes making music from the start. And then later you get, um, you know, some diversification of, of content and subject matter. And then that's when you get some of what folks call like quote unquote real uh hip hop being made that's calling out social issues and um and you know speaking truth to power. Okay. I mean in in many ways this is I I still think that you know the 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 first one then it's still I mean it literally is talking about creative juices. So <laughs> Yeah. Ed, I cut you off. What were you going to Yeah, ask? well what I was going to ask was do you do you think the immediate uh, explosion of hip hop had to do with its its difference from what else was out there, or was there something else going on in in urban environments that like made I don't know right. what what do you think what do you think led to the explosion of the art form the way the way that it experienced yeah. Um... That's a great question. And hip hop is something from nothing. So something from nothing. So Cool Herc and all the people uh, hosting that party, just low income, trying to scrap up some money for some back to school clothes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, busting open sound systems, trying to, you know, enhance them and being able to create something from almost nothing, like just minimal equipment. And mm -hmm. hip hop is that ultra accessible form of music you don't know how you don't have to know how to play instruments you don't have to know how to read music you don't have to be able to sing so i think the accessibility of it it being something okay. that somebody in you know in a, a basement in philadelphia could hear it and with some just very very basic basic equipment can reproduce it and create something very popular and very great so i think that's okay. that has more to do with it than anything else okay again this is like absolutely paralleling what we learned <laughs> and, and again the same time span it's yeah i mean what we're seeing we're seeing urban youth with yeah. nothing you, you what what did you say in the in that episode in a perfect world punk rock punk would wouldn't not exist, exist right well yeah in um, a perfect world hip-hop wouldn't have come about yeah which either, yeah. because the Phrasing. resources the resources would have been there for something else right right like people would not have had to create something from nothing because they would have had yeah. what they needed um gosh dang that's that's really interesting to me so and and then of course i'm i'm the word guy so i do go back to them talking about the super sperms so something from nothing 
uh, and just <laughs> this parthogenetic kind of uh, self-creation, uh, you know, just, I don't know. Okay, cool. Okay, so that gets us into what, 1979? So that's when that hit. And then so the 79 through the early 80s, 80, 81, 82, mm-hmm. were all those really classic old school songs. Um, These are the breaks, for example, like the real classic um, party type hip hop music. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a couple years before he started to get serious music in terms of content matter. And the first uh, officially recorded, released, serious, quote unquote, uh, song, but I, by serious, I mean calling out uh, systemic injustices and um, speaking to the conditions of the Bronx um, mm-hmm. was by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And that song was called The Message. I believe that was 82. I get Mm-hmm. Uh, be wrong 82 83 um and broken glass everywhere people pissing on the street seems like they just don't care and the whole song from top to bottom is is calling out the living conditions of folks specifically in the bronx but you know of course folks in brooklyn and queens um harlem could could relate and sure. basically asking the question like what's going on like one of the my favorite verses of all time um grab so grandmaster flash is the DJ for the group. Um, he's not a rapper. So on, on that particular song, Melly Mel, um, he begins a verse with a child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind. And he walks this child through um, life in the Bronx, mm-hmm. um, being young, uh, being uh, poorly educated by the um, underfunded public schools, um, struggling for money, deciding to become a stick up kid to try to earn some cash. Um, that escalating uh, fights, violence, uh, imprisonment, being incarcerated, and then the trauma of being incarcerated and being around folks who are tougher than you are. You thought you were tough out there on the streets. Right. And by the end of the verse, that that um, that character commits suicide. And in the last lines are, um, you know, your 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 eyes sing a song of deep hate, and it's just. Um, you know, just the tragedy of this child born with no, just blind to all the uh, injustices, blind to racism, blind to classism and, and, and all that stuff and having such a tragic fate. And that's like powerful stuff for, you know, for some stuff for, you know, a genre that started off talking, you know, talking about, you know, super sperm. So, um, (laughs) you know, and that, that comes early, like a few years um, before, the crack epidemic really explodes and then and then there's no separating the content of the music from uh the conditions on the streets is there other music at that time again again punk is absolutely shoving their thumb in the eyes of the powerful um but is there any other music at that time that is really pushing at this is what it's like at the ground level like I'm I'm trying to think of like the other genres that are really popular at the time. It's much more glam type stuff, right? It's much more um now that I've gotten success, I I can, you know, I can Yeah, and for the fantasy. for the masses, those genres are all escapism. Yeah, whereas this one is reflective and I don't know, there's there it feels like there's some meat on that bone in terms of like the the reflective nature of hip hop starting in like what you said was 81, 82. And then it never stops being that, right? Like there's, there's always a, it doesn't mean every song is about that because there's certainly 
you know, East, yeah. East Side Boys and stuff like that. But uh, and you know, but there's there is uh, absolutely a thread of that, like, and more than just a thread. I mean, that's just that's absolutely one part of the tapestry. Um, it, it's very very self reflective. Um, I also am noticing that uh, it is uh, still locationally specific. You're still talking about the Bronx. Um, yeah. And so is that still just the locus of it and people who want to do it come there or that's just the only stuff that's getting out because execs, right. you know. No, it spreads to the rest of New York. It spreads okay. to the other boroughs for sure. And then there's a really infamous um, music beef between artists in the Bronx and artists in Queens. Queens did some you know, as a non-New York person looking at what happened, it, sound, it seems like um, MC Shan and some other artists uh, from Queens did some, you know, uh, creative uh, uh, reinterpretation of, of of how hip hop got started and where it got started. And, and they claimed Queens um, as really like the important um, area where hip hop really got going and, and really grew. So um, they had a song called The Bridge. And then folks from South Bronx, KRS-One, Boogie Down Productions, they respond with the bridge is over and basically slam Queens into just embarrassment. Um, but yeah, it was happening uh, across the boroughs and there was competition uh, between the different boroughs for sure. Okay. So how long did it take for the West Coast to get involved? Because this is all very, very intensely New York centered for... Yeah. I mean, it sounds like almost at least a decade. When when do we start hearing anything from the other side of the country? Yeah, the West Coast was late to the party. Um, you know, the most we're three famous... hours behind. I mean, there you go. Um, <laughs> there you go. No, I mean, you know, Dr. Dre, the most successful uh, West Coast artist in terms of just money and and, and legacy. He was still making basically disco music, um, more or less. Um, in the early eighties and, you know, his group, the world-class record crew not rap um, sequins and just disco stuff at, at a time when folks were ready to move on from that. Um, so uh, yeah, West coast really gets going when gangster rap gets going and gangster okay. rap gets going as a um, reflection of the crack epidemic and right. the huge spike in okay. violence and devastation in uh, urban centers. So what you're saying is we can thank the CIA for West Coast. Absolutely. Okay. All right. I just wanted to get that (laughs) down explicitly pinned. Okay. Thank you. I also note that uh, with gangster rap, it's also very stripped down. Yeah. A lot lot of blacks, a lot of whites in terms of shirts. Uh, Very simple stuff on, you know, like similar to run DMC. Which, I mean, some of that might be like, oh, okay, that's what they do. We're just going to do it without the piping. Um, we're just going to wear a t-shirt and and, and jeans, uh, not a tracksuit. But, uh, but at the same time, that stripped down nature seems, it flies absolutely in the face of the flamboyance. That was the word I was looking for before. The flamboyance of disco and funk. Um, and, uh, and also into the, in the face of the elderliness of disco and funk. Because if you look at most... Yeah disco and funk bands it, it you always have you have that one guy who's dressed like a space samurai and at the same time he's got like the uh, moses malone hair like receding hairline that like yes goes, like backward it's like the inverted widow's peak and it's you know three feet high and he's wearing mascara which cool look if you can do it but 
hey, look look up the video to mm -hmm. the message, the song I just talked about. And he's rapping about this, this young man who eventually commits suicide because of the trauma of being incarcerated. And the mm -hmm. whole group, they are dressed so flamboyant. It's just it's, really? it does it just doesn't add up to the content of the song versus how they're dressed. And students, I when I when students see that, they're like, you know, students they, you know, they're like, wait, I, you know, that what's their what's their sexuality, Dr. Rusty? It's like, well, <laughs> actually wearing little crop tops, little back then, that was not considered uh, at all to be tied to any kind of like, uh, if, these guys are tough guys. You step to them, they would whoop your ass. These aren't right. like, you know, they're not dressed like that because of what, you know, whatever, you know, homophobic thoughts you have about uh, attire and masculinity. Like, Right. Yeah. They, they will beat your ass in their goldfish platform shoes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, so I remember, it just occurred to me, uh, the song White Lines, I remember seeing yeah. the video for that, and they are dressed like, they, they're dressed like the background singers to uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Like, they're not quite the flashy, flashy, but they're like one level below that. Like, they could be extras yeah. in The Last Dragon kind of, yeah. kind of thing. Okay, so, and again, uh, we're seeing hip hop going a very different way. Stripped yeah. down, uh, very basic, uh, very very plain, and uh, away that's... from breakbeats. Like the breakbeats, yeah. the sample that that all faded away, and now you had drum machines. So some of the toughest songs of that era were just very powerful drums and snares hitting very simple simple beats that were stripped down sonically, just like mm -hmm. the visuals were. Now, is that true on both coasts or is there starting to be a difference? And by the way, I don't mean to be coastal elite here on, on either end. There are other mm -hmm. places where hip hop uh, certainly has different things uh, coming in. I can only imagine um, Miami having an Afro-Cuban kind of thing going on. I can think Louisiana, probably a big port place. Houston has always been. I, I'm also thinking of all the places where wrestling was really big. Uh, Houston. <laughs> Uh, uh st louis um chicago oh yeah there you go um again i'm only thinking where wrestling was really big and chicago wasn't a huge wrestling town exactly okay. they weren't it, it was special but it wasn't it wasn't a common place okay uh, but anyway so um but are we seeing a differential in styles in terms of uh the the music the composition uh not so much time? yet Okay. Um, not so much yet. The first song that had what that would be considered gangster rap mid eighties, mm -hmm. um, was by Philadelphia artist Schoolie D. It was called a PSK. What does it mean? Spoiler alert: PSK stood for Parkside Killers, which was a local gang. Uh, first song to use the N word. First song to have. I think it was the first song to have explicit language. Period. Um, and it was a typical lifestyle gangster trap, gangster rap song, like you know, rolling around, smoking going to parties, having sex, getting in a shootout, going home at the end of the night. Um, and West Coast wise, Ice-T um, was inspired by that song and made his own version of a lifestyle gangster rap type song called Six in the Morning. And it sounds very, very similar, like extreme, extraordinarily similar to the Philadelphia, the Schoolie D version. And Six in the Morning is what got, got it all started on the West Coast in terms of rap. Uh, Ice-T um, reflecting the what crack and, and gang violence was doing in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, you get NWA and that just takes it to a higher level, uh, bigger platform. And then, yeah, that's it. So, so mid eighties wise, 
you're still not getting a ton of variation, but what it sounds like from one city to the next. It's a lot of folks hearing something for the first time and being blown away and then trying to create that themselves. So there's a lot of similarity with actual sound um, okay. until later in the 80s. So uh, Schoolie D, is he part of the group that Will Smith mentions uh, later on? Uh, the I, gentlemen who were up to no good? He probably would be if he timed it out right. And the thing is, a lot of folks don't realize uh, Fresh, uh, Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff, their debut record came out I think the same day, if not the same year, as mm -hmm. NWAs, and it it was just the starkest contrast between yeah. the like teenage fun, still in its innocence, Partoon. rap music, and then very the like too. yeah, f the police stuff, yeah, very um, just that juxtaposition, and we well, know and which one won out in terms of what record labels went for, yeah, and, uh, and what, what, what MTV would hear. actually play, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like so, okay. So, uh, yeah, keep, keep, keep it coming. Um, I'm, I'm just absorbing all this. Uh, it's, it's, I, 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 the only parallels I can draw are to things like professional wrestling and, uh, there's, there's not that much on the bone there, uh, really. So, okay. So you've got people, um, you've got Ice-T and Schoolie D, um, very similar. Ice-T is kind of, I like that. I'm going to do that here now. I'm going to bring that to over here. Um, and also I'm yeah. going to make money off of that. Right. Uh, is this before or after he gets out of the Navy? Uh, after. Okay. So, yes. um, cause I, I, I remember that he left, uh, he left for the Navy and then when he gets back, his, his crew is there and they're, they like just pull him right back into the world, um, mm. per his narration. And I, right, I right. recognize that, you know, not necessarily a, a reliable narrator. Um, but, uh, but okay. So afterward and he's, is he part of any group or is he on his own? Yeah, he's, he's on his own. Um, okay. yeah. And it was also that era is also often referred to as like the golden age of rap because hmm. yes, the gangster rap, um, part of it was really getting going and in, in of, of course, eventually going to like, just take over. Um, but you also had, uh, such diversification of sounds you had uh the emergence of public enemy you had just just brilliant poetic storytellers like eric b and rakim um mm -hmm. you had um you just you just had a little bit of everything no matter what your tastes were you know you had right. the fresh princes of the world uh with the you know a little safer teenage type stuff uh you yeah. had mc light you had um slick rick so there was a real um diversification of sounds Mm -hmm. it, the rhyme schemes were getting way more complex than, you know, the, you know, he can't do it with his little worm, but I could knock you out with my super sperm. Like that, those right. little writing couplets were gone. And right. now so you had some really eight, like, eight. yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that, you know, that's the late eighties and by the end, you know, Def Jam is still the thing. And this is, you know, BC boys have already exploded onto the scene, run DMC, of course, um, LL Cool J, all them. So we're talking billion dollar industry at this point. And then it's really into the 90s that um, you see sort of the the emergence of sort of two wings of it in terms of like the West Coast sound and mm -hmm. the laid back sounds with incredible violence. And um, the still the East Coast, you had uh, native tongues, you had uh, some Afrocentrism uh, popping mm -hmm. up. You had folks from the South starting to emerge in the early 90s. That's where you get like, 
a lot of uh, representation from Houston and then mid nineties, you get, you know, outcasts and Atlanta and then it's just everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. Right. Yeah. I, I want to drill in a little bit on, on the, uh, you said, um, uh, you, it was a really, really interesting juxtaposition, incredible violence with uh laid back sound. Yep. So the lyrics are speaking to the incredible violence, I assume. And it's being, it, it's being, uh, wrapped over a, a laid back sound, um, so that in itself is is just fascinating to me. It's it's um, Mick Foley talks about this a lot when he talks about wrestling. Is in that um, he will listen to beautiful beautiful music as he's picturing these. Uh, you've seen videos of Mick Foley getting thrown off of things and getting put through thumbtacks and things like that. He's that guy. Um, and so, but it, it, he says what gets him ready for that is like Tori Amos music and stuff like that. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it's it's really bizarre. Um, so Mick Foley uh, is really bizarre. Let's not, you know, Mick Foley like... is one of the most normal people in wrestling. <laughs> he really, if you like listen to any interview with him, you're yeah, like, well, yeah, wow. because he gets all of that out of his system. I guess so. You know, so you've got this. I mean, is that, is that laid back sound to the incredible violence? Is that juxtaposition an artistic choice? Is that a trend that's going or is that more of, where the sound is coming from compared to New York. So I'm I'm thinking in New York you've got the portable music. Uh, I think they called them ghetto blasters for a while. Uh, the the really big tape decks uh, that we saw Radio uh, Rakim carrying in. Um, uh, do the right thing. Um, you've got those. Those don't get carried around that much in in no, LA. You've got Coast. you've got a lot of sprawl in LA. So you've got yeah. it coming mostly out of cars. Yeah. Yeah. As, absolutely. And, open top cars because you've got a lot of car parties and things like that. Whereas in New York, you've got the sound bouncing off of brownstones and starting on the, on, you know, and, and, and I'm just thinking geographically, like, is that one of the reasons for it or what's, what's going on in there? You know, I can't say for sure. I've always thought of it as just the California lifestyle is slower and more laid back than, huh. I mean, New York, like, you know, I don't know if either of y'all have spent much time in New York. Like you Never can't been. even walk down the freaking sidewalk unless you're going at a very fast pace because someone will run you over because everyone's rushing. Everything's everything's oh. happening all at once. It's really just the whole city is upon you. Whereas in the West Coast, it's um just different feel. And I I, I always took it the music to be a reflection of that, the reflection okay. of riding around on a Sunday in your car. And mm. yeah. There's a lot less horns honking in LA. Uh yeah on a Sunday, yeah. whereas in New York, that's all, that is the sound. That is the so. sound. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so the, and the incredible violence again, that's, that's a, uh, so you don't have that in New York. You don't have the gangster rap really propping up in New York at all. It was nowhere near as explicit as the West coast stuff. Yeah. Okay. Nowhere near as explicit, like the stuff. And this is like me in middle school, the stuff I was hearing was just mm -hmm. like, when I think back to it, it's just like ultra, ultra, graphic ultra violent stuff and um eventually once once gangster rap was really making big money mm -hmm. uh it's almost like you know groups were competing to you know who could be the hardest who could be the most uh the most violent and the east coast i mean you know rap music everywhere was violent and and certainly expressing that but the west coast we're also looking at a time of mass incarceration this was when three strikes law came about because of the impact of the crack epidemic crack epidemic right. brought so much money into street gangs uh operations as they were competing for territory and that money brought more 
more violence and more violence more weapons yeah and um the amount of folks who were killed or incarcerated during that during that era was just um uh beyond beyond comprehension so the music definitely reflected that what would be the peak of like the the gangster raps violence that you're talking about like how they're trying to outdo each other with how how graphic what what year would you say did we get to like and feel free to ballpark it like this year to this year. But like, what would you, cause I'm, I'm I've got a, a theory working here. Um, right. What would you say the peak would be super unscientifically. I would say Actually. like 92 to 93. Um, <laughs> but that's super unscientifically. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. you as a consumer of those goods, you, you might have a better, you know, your anecdote is certainly more than, you know, mine. So Ed, what was I going to say? Well, um, I know what it, what immediately came into my mind when you were asking the question about the high watermark of it mm -hmm. was uh, the uh, riots of '92 in LA. Oh yeah, also that. Oh, okay. I was Rodney just King. Say, I I was going to say ECW. Oh, it, of course. Dead serious, <laughs> bitch. Manuel, do you know ECW much? Or? I assume the W stands for wrestling, though. Yeah, it I, does. I don't know much beyond <laughs> <Yeah>. that. Yes, <laughs> uh, it it becomes like this really hyper violent. It's where you get hardcore wrestling from. Uh -huh. Um, you have Japanese death matches prior to that, but the American importation of them is through ECW largely, and it's right around that same time. Yeah, I was jumping off of balconies. Yeah, like there's, it, there's, in death, death blow swan dives. Yeah, it's, there's there's a wrestler named New Jack. And if you just type in New Jack balcony um, on a Google search uh, or for a YouTube search, you will find it. Um, it is Does somebody die in that video. Not in that one. No, not in that he, one. <laughs> yeah, he was trying to kill somebody. If you type in New Jack mass transit, you'll see him trying to kill someone. Um, but I mean, they're talking about they're they're bringing cheese graters to the ring. They're they're wow. using like weed whackers on each other. They crowd would like bring items for them to use, and that became kind of a thing. Um, and it's all in this early to mid '90s time, which is a thing that we focused on a lot of different times. Like this early to mid '90s time is like you said, it's the crack epidemic, right? It's it's the right. three strikes law. It's it's you know the beginning of the Clinton era. Um, and you see that um, the payoff of centrist liberalism where they're like courting, uh, you know, white supremacist voters to shifting to the Overton to... window. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you get you get closer to contract with America kind of shit and and you get um, welfare reform and you get all these things that super juice up the economy, but only for the people who are already doing all right. And everyone else, there is. In almost every genre we see in in comic books, we see Lee Field and his drawings, and you know, lots of pouches, lots of knives, lots of big and his shitty men. feet. Yeah, no feet. Um, you see in ECW, you see cheese graters and bloodletting galore. You see a literal barbed wire matches where the ring has been replaced by barbed wire. Um, and you get a Man. guy named Sabu, you know, and and he's genocidal, homicidal, and. I forget what the third one was suicidal <laughs> because he's like using chairs. He's throwing chairs at people. The entire crowd throws chairs into the ring and buries people in them. It's just so fucking weird. Um, and then uh, you, you get that in wrestling. You get, like I said, comic books. Um, yeah. The post, uh, the post Rodney King stuff you get. Also, you start to see that grittiness coming into Star Trek. You see just in almost every genre, you start to see, 
all of this like this representation of violence it's inescapable and so i was i was it's interesting mm. to see that it matches up with hip-hop as well yeah that's yeah that's definitely interesting um and i would say the at least for the hip-hop part of it the the ronnie king beating definitely had um a lot to do with it as well because it was a reflection of lapd tactics at the time lapd mm -hmm. 80s uh famously brutal um mm -hmm. even before the 80s but especially in the 80s during the uh crack epidemic when it was, yeah it was um incredibly incredibly brutal and you know you see black folks being killed left and right eula love a, a black mother mm -hmm. um who didn't pay her i think it was her gas bill um was eight dollars delinquent or something and and you know energy companies showed up to shut it down and she wouldn't let them in police showed up and she had a knife they they shot her dead right there on the front yard for what, eight bucks like that she was delinquent on it. and then latasha harlins which was a right uh you know tupac referenced latasha harlins a lot you know a uh, mm -hmm. young black girl who was shot in the back of the head by a, a store owner um mm -hmm. and after she was leaving too like, after she was leaving yeah. didn't you know it was, it was you know it's just a tragic case where the the store owner was convicted of mm -hmm. murder but then the judge um had the um liberty to go ahead and sentence her to only probation for shooting this i think 13 year old maybe 14 yeah. year old in the back of the head so all that and then ronnie king beating which far from mm -hmm. the only beating but was first one on clear tape for the time and right. yeah yeah and i want to say that happened like the week after the latasha harlan's yeah. case got decided yeah and yeah. commuted yeah it's yeah. And so at that, the same that... time, you also had the Tawana Brawley case uh, in New York just a few years earlier, too. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. New York is no, you know, no. Um, you mentioned Central do Park the right Five. thing yeah. Um, yeah, not yeah. too long ago. But, you know, do the right thing certainly has references to, um, you know, in the film, some of the graffiti on uh, on the walls. Oh, um, Tawana to told the happened there. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. Right yeah. there. So. Um, so, yeah. So that's certainly reflected in the, in the music and. And then, of course, everybody was blaming the music for inciting and people to this day still blame the music um, for for the violence that's happening in cities. So, you know, you, that's when you got the parental advisory uh, explicit content label mm -hmm. thrown on CDs. And you had, you know, these public events where folks were bulldozing rap CDs. And, and I think it was Dan Quayle, Dan Quayle who called it, a, you know, a threat to our society and Mm -hmm. and specifically mm -hmm. called out Tupac and two of all the rappers to call out at that wow. time like Tupac's the last one to call out because he was like you know Brenda's <laughs> got a baby like he was speaking about like coming together and healing and right. and keep your head up and like you know it's like you will call him out you got all these other fools out here rapping about all this other stuff so yeah uh wild wild times and I don't know I just think of all the lives lost to the um criminal justice system and just to the streets at that era like you know, we're as teachers now, you know, we're, mm -hmm. you're seeing the, you know, grandkids of, of, of folks from that era. And it's just, um, you know, yeah. that trauma doesn't just disappear into thin air, no. you know, it carries. No, absolutely. Definitely I mean, not. It, you, you yeah. can see that in meetings with parents and kids, and you can see that in the fact that a kid suddenly is off your roster. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So we're in the, we're in the late, I, I'd like to rewind back to the late eighties, largely sure. because one of my favorite groups, uh, public enemy uh yeah. is is really coming up and they they release what is it like three albums in pretty short order right um yeah uh the the, the most obvious one is fear of a black planet 
Um, but uh, where they're, and as you said, the, the composition of not only their lyrics, but also the the way that they're presenting them is very, very, I'm going to say groundbreaking uh, because almost everything that Chuck D does is he's, he's using Epic meter. So Latinist here. I love that. <laughs> um, but it, it absolutely changes the, the tone and the tenor of what he's bringing up. Um, and he's got a hype man who is a famous personality for being a hype man, despite also being a tremendous musician, right? Flava Flav yeah. is, is, is an incredible musician. Um, he was my favorite. I mean, I was a, yeah. a child at the time, but sure. like he, I, Flava Flav was my favorite. Like, yeah, yeah. He's, he's got that Austin tenat, the, the the flamboyance, ostentatiousness, flamboyance, flamboyance. Uh, he's got the flamboyance, and he's he's in some ways pulling from that cartoonish. Parents just don't understand um, aesthetic, and at the same time, he's acting as a hype man for a guy who's singing. Uh, trem- uh, about a tremendous amount of social justice stuff um, and about, you know, and, and again, with uh, uh, do the right thing, uh, absolutely popularized fight the power and and things like that. But like, if you, you, you know, you got the lyrics going, you've got him hyping in the background, you got Terminator X being mentioned quite often. And I think that's kind of the last I really hear of uh, a DJ um, in a, in a lot of things, I guess, Spinderella with salt and Peppa, but um, like you being called correct. out in the song yeah so it's it's um they're 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 not west coast right they're they're over on the east coast long Um, island that's right okay um god we're gonna cover all the boroughs aren't we uh so so they're Uh, what um, is long i don't know what long island is considered it's not considered a borough it's it's not one of the it's not one of the boroughs yeah it's one of the islands it's a yeah different there's there's long island categorization island and but yeah, Staten uh, Island got no love in rap music until Wu Tang Clan, but they weren't even mentioned in like when I talked oh, about those borough wars earlier between the Queens and the Bronx and Paris yeah. One was like Manhattan keep on making it, Brooklyn keep on taking it, Bronx keep creating it, and Queens keep on faking it. And I'm like, he didn't even mention Staten Island. He didn't even bother. It. It's like whatever. <laughs> well, well, you know, that, I mean, it's it's a smaller area. There's not as much going on there. It's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like. Well, and, and Wu-Tang is a very different approach to it as well. I mean, you had like, yes. yeah, and I, I'm, I assume we'll get to that too. Yeah. But so back to Public Enemy, um, what's going on like as far as people's response to them? Are they kind of just folded into the, okay, everybody's singing about what's around them, the social consciousness thing, or do they stand out? They as stand much? out. Okay, they do stand out as much at the time. Yeah, heavily. They brought a... Um an air, like a, a image of militants that that went back to like, you know, the black radicals of the late sixties and early seventies sure. that like echoed through everything, even like their, you know, how they would enter the stage and 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 very reminiscent of uh Nation of Islam and mm-hmm. and um yeah, and that that there's other, you know, if you folks want to call it like conscious rap at the time, there's a lot at the time. But in terms of militant, like mm-hmm. in terms of like in the image of of Malcolm X, now nah, it was it was Public Enemy, and um, you know nine one one is a joke, and just right. like, just like yeah, they just uh, speaking truth to power in terms of um, interrogating the, the systems around us. Yeah, they were yeah. Uh, one of a kind in that regard for sure. And even right. just the voice, the bass behind Chuck yeah. D and what he was mm-hmm. saying is like it all just came together like really perfectly as a just forceful. And then when Do the Right Thing came out and you know fight the power, 
like mm-hmm. literally fight the power and it's like that right. was the, that was the song of the summer man so yeah, yeah they were they were in a league of their own so do you think their uh aesthetic like you said the the militant kind of kind of way they carried themselves was that something they consciously like was it it was it a choice that like no we're going to echo the panthers and you know these other nation of islam and these other movements or was it just no man we we have something to say and we're going to carry ourselves this way and that's just kind of the way you carry yourself when you're doing that like right yeah no that's a great question um this they came sort of in the right behind run dmc so it was a a matter of melding the tough in your face just like power of Mm -hmm. of run dmc's whole style but then bringing in the the critical consciousness within it so sort of an effort to take what run run dmc had done and then add the criticality to it um and that's what you know that's what brings a public enemy okay cool yeah so that's okay thank you for rewinding back back to that so then we're getting into the 90s um this is actually uh, god i was like in fifth grade so ed was already off to college um Fuck you <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's certain things that i have to hit certain benchmarks i have to hit on on our uh, on our episodes one is uh teasing ed for being literally like a year and a half older than me um mm. another is i have to mention wrestling at least three times um and then if it's something that i've written there has to be every sixth episode that i've written it has to be some sort of um alliteration so i don't have to do that here you were so, a tupac yeah. guy then tupac loved alliteration i'm a Especially big fan of alliteration yeah. oh yeah. interesting the last yeah, alliteration perfect. i did was i painted was... a perfect picture yeah oh nice i did one about peter parker uh mm. comics there you go uh, <laughs> but um okay so uh we we've we've come forward into the 90s uh i remember my first two tapes two cassette tapes that i ever bought right so i'm like Mm -hmm. fifth grade sixth grade in florida in bronson florida 800 people 804 people in the whole town while my family was there 800 when we left um there were still two cemeteries because they didn't want black people and white people rotting together uh no Oh, keep God. that separate exactly yeah, well i mean obviously um and uh <laughs> but yeah uh but that was i i i got two tapes for my birthday that year one was skid row uh and the other was tone loke uh mm. and so that that <laughs> ed is blinking his eyes insanely here all right um yeah i i so uh in the nineties, in the early nineties, again, like you said, it's, it's opening up, it's diversifying quite a bit. Um, there is, there does seem to be an undercurrent of, um, people wanting to have fun through the rap as well. Yeah. Uh, it's not just political consciousness. It's not just gangster rap. It's not just the observational stuff. It's also, you know, uh, just a few years later, I think young MC, um, came out with a one that I'm not going to mention, but uh, it was sweet. Uh, and then a few other words. Uh, but, um, but yeah, there's, there's uh, more of that, what you talked about before, like very uh, yeah. misogynistic and, and stuff like that, which is grist for the mill for, for Tipper Gore and, and her crew. Um, but I, I also noticed that the, the beat is getting slower um, and, and lower and the voices are getting deeper as, as well. 
uh, is that hmm. maybe? Is, yeah, yeah. I, I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, definitely. That was Tone Loke. Tone Loke's thing. Oh yeah. Is that yeah. why he was called Tone Loke? I never. Whatever <laughs> happened to Tone Loke? Um, uh, he turned into like a a lizard in Fern Gully, and then beyond that, I think he helped a, a pet detective in Miami, and and we haven't heard from him since. So. Oh, he wasn't that. That's yeah, right. he was. <laughs> Um, oh. I feel like when I think back to it, there mm -hmm. was just, um, it almost seems like record companies were trying hard to find the next thing. And a lot of things were oh. kind of gimmicky. Yeah. I'm thinking about like Fushnikins who I loved oh, and yeah. they, you know, they would rap really fast and stuff. Right. And, um, and they were cool with like, all the respect to them, but mm -hmm. it was like kind of gimmicky, like the whole like super fast rapping Right. Uh, the, at least the way I remember it being presented. Maybe I'm wrong. Sha Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, this is a little later. That's more like mid '90s. Uh, right. Shaq dropping his own album. Um, Didn't he yeah. work with Fushnikins though? Yeah, that's what yeah. made me think of him because I was like, yeah. wait, he had a song with the Fushnikins. Yeah, I actually loved his first album. I think I was that. Yeah, that might have been early '90s. No, must have been midnight. I'd have had well, to Google Shaq, it. But... Shaq ends up uh, coming into the league. I want to say like '93. Okay, so, so that's, and it that's was right when he burst onto the scene because right. it was all about Shaq at the time. And I think yeah. he, yeah, I, I don't, I assume he still has the, um, the rec, the, I'm, right. I assume he's still the only one, uh, professional basketball player with a platinum record because that his first album went platinum. It took a very long time, but it made it. Wow. Um, and I remember hearing like he was the first pro athlete to go platinum. I don't know if it's in all sports or just pro NBA player, but um, right. I had that album and I had his his Reeboks with the little pump. Um, at the time, <laughs> I had a t shirt with him on it, and it gave his height and his weight. And I was like, wow, he weighs as much as Hulk Hogan. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, yeah, so then you had you know, you had the, the mm -hmm. hardcore gangster stuff, you had right. some of the you know, lighter, maybe gimmickier, um, you know, trying to. Trying to appeal to, to young kids, yeah, and and you had, LOD. you had, and then Wu Tang came out, and you, mm -hmm. I mean, you had everything by that point, um, right? But being a California kid, I know the most of what I consumed at the time was that California style gangster rap, specifically mm -hmm. Northern California. You know, Northern California rap had its own sounds compared to Southern California, and then of course you had uh, Houston and and Atlanta eventually, and right. Um, and then Wu-Tang came out and was like, we're harder than all of y'all and not in that same gangster type of way, gangbanging type of way, mm -hmm. but just the griminess of being poor in a freezing cold city where everybody's in a bad mood all the time. And that griminess, <laughs> like, you know, they they brought a lot of, you know, yeah. So it was out, Cat was out of bag, all sorts of different genres, all sorts of different um, angles and... Mm -hmm. A lot of money being made, not a whole lot necessarily by the artists themselves, but a lot of uh, money being made by the big major uh, record labels. So Wu-Tang Clan, uh, Clan comes out, what, uh, 94? I guess, that's no, they, they're, yeah, I, I think that's mm -hmm. like when one of their first major projects comes out. And they, like I said, they're, they were a huge departure from how groups had done before, right? Like before yes. you had either a single or a group. Right. Or or often you had duos, but um but with Wu Tang, what was their what was their makeup? How did they differ? Yeah, they were the first group to come out with each person also having their own solo deal. So it was sort of a a real like um 
Voltron uh-huh. sort of situation where each one had his own power, his own style, his own everything, but mm-hmm. together they were the Wu-Tang Clan. And, you know, the samples they were using were just mind-blowing. Like nobody was, you know, sampling, you know, obscure 70s Kung Fu flicks and stuff. Like right. nobody was doing any of that. And then each one, not literally every member, but like the Most. prominent members yeah. um, coming out with their own solo efforts after the fact that had some of that Wu-Tang style but also were were um, unique in their their own regard. So yeah, that was um I, I they were certainly the first group to have you know a group deal and then allow mm-hmm. each individual to have their own individual deal with different labels. Not with they didn't have to stay with the same label. So it was a lot of different labels. Um, so that was definitely uh, very revolutionary. And that was that was a whole big thing. And that was a start con- not start contrast, but that was certainly a East Coast response to the West Coast sound. And you know. Unfortunately, the the East Coast West Coast dynamic um, sort of like um, got uh, exacerbated by uh, media uh, coverage of the East Coast versus West Coast type of sound, and then the Biggie Tupac um, part came in, which had some personal parts to it, but also some just media hype to it, right. and you get that rivalry. And then the South the whole time was like, "What about us? We have amazing music that doesn't sound like either one of y'all." Yeah, and you know, yeah. Okay, so uh, if we could, because um, this episode's coming to a close, uh, mm-hmm. Wu Tang Clan uh, seems like an interesting uh, break spot because, like you said, they they innovated in such a way. Were they able to keep more of their own money, each artist, uh, or was it still the record companies just taking up ninety five percent and then giving them the nickel? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. That's a great okay. question. I never heard about any of them being in better financial straits than, than uh, the re- basically all of my favorite rappers from the nineties. Like they all eventually um, said that they were basically broke, that the the deals yeah. that they were on weren't really paying them much of anything. Um, and not just rappers either. Like, you know, TLC was, you know, left. I was very vocal about how mm-hmm. little money she got. Like, she, I think she, for one of their biggest albums, it was like, you know, 300,000 bucks after taxes and after like cutting everything. It's like, damn, that's it. Like you were on world tour. Yeah. I think they said that they made $50,000 a year after generating 10 million, like 50,000 each. Like, so there you you know, because they got to cut it uh, between the three of them. And, and after generating 10 million on, on that album. Mm -hmm. Um, So actually, okay. So um, that, that actually brings me into a different question then. Um, most of the people that we've been talking about have been men. Um, there were women that were, um, early on, there were, Mm -hmm. there were women that were early on, uh, Queen Latifah, uh, Salt and Pepper, um, MC Light, MC Light, uh, Shan. Yeah, there, yeah, there, um, Roxanne Shantae. Yeah, there were, um, yeah, they, they, they definitely, they, they've been there throughout, but they Mm -hmm. were very rarely given nearly as much uh attention credibility or anything and then by the 90s when everything's so so super hardcore like you know you have um some pretty successful uh women mcs but who were sort of embodying embodying that like hardcore type aesthetic like debrat um lady of rage for um death row Records. so yeah yeah um they were present but they were not they were definitely space wasn't held for them in a, in any kind of like significant and, and successful way. And actually you're still just now barely in 2023 starting to see there be more than just a couple of, of women rappers out there. 
Um, right. And it's, we are, we are way past the nineties and um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause I was just thinking about um, growing up uh, in San Francisco. Uh, I lived in a, a behind a building that had basically fallen apart but they hadn't demolished it. So we would go in there and rip up linoleum and then bring it out to our neighborhood. Cause you could spin better on linoleum than on cardboard. Oh, and yeah. uh, which I'll probably die of mesothelioma as a result, but, but <laughs> it was worth it. It was totally um, that third place trophy that I got at six years old in a, in the citywide break dancing competition. It's, I still have no idea where it went. <laughs> Um, I remembered the puppet more than I remembered the trophy come to think of it. Uh, cause they gave me a puppet for it. Um, but, uh, but we would, um, there was somebody that had, uh, there's a family from Detroit that lived right next door to us. And it was kind of funny cause my mom grew up in Dearborn and my mom would not tell, uh, the, the mother of that family, that family was black. Um, my mother would not tell the mother of that family where in Michigan she was from. And finally she just said to her one day, she's like, you're from Dearborn, aren't you? Like, yeah. She's like, always can tell when someone's from Dearborn because they're ashamed of it. But uh, I think one of their kids, uh, yeah, Rasan, he had uh, a, a tape deck and we would listen to, there was a song called Supersonic and it was all women's yeah. voices uh, on there. And I think that, and the, I think he had a Fat Boys tape. Um, and that's what we, uh, that's what we break dance to. Um, the whole nice. neighborhood was those two, those two tapes. But I remember there were women's voices on Supersonic. Yeah. Um, but okay, so they don't they don't really get much shrift, as it were. Um, it's it's certainly short, and the the ones that I named are kind of the only ones that are, uh, or or uh, represent a large majority of the ones who who managed to make it and really get much notice, I guess. So so they didn't influence it too much one way or the other. They were just kind of there were also rands with the, with the genres then. I think that's fair to say. I can't really think of um, in terms. Yeah. I think, I think that's a fair assessment and um, that's coupled with the way women were um, spoken about or referred reference in most of the music at the time and still to this day for sure. sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to, I was going to ask, do you think that lack of representation is kind of rooted in the fact that this all started as something that, you know, teenage boys were doing when they were providing entertainment at parties and, and that adolescent male attitude is, is kind of the root of, of that whole energy. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say that's, that's the likely case. And, you know, I, I definitely don't know much about wrestling, but I can name a whole lot of male wrestlers from from the 80s and 90s, and I can't name too many women. And I don't know if there's similarity there in terms of the audience, in terms of like appealing to young boys, yep. um, especially with in the case of like, you know, if you're, you're a young boy in the 90s, like this music, like it sounds strong, it sounds tough. And, right. you know, it's it's really all the wrong messages if you're like trying to find yourself in terms of like, you know, being comfortable with who you are and not needing to be tough, which is why groups like De La Soul and Tribe Quest are so important because they showed us another, um, they showed us that not everybody's just tough and on the streets, but, um, right. but yeah, I imagine that's, that has a lot to do with why we don't have nearly as many uh, women in hip hop, um, especially at that time. Man, you just, you just brought up uh, another like 
branch of of hip-hop that i wanted to uh to to query you on and that is uh again de la soul and and tribe called quest specifically because that you you'd spoken of wu-tang clan getting samples that were just way out of this world um and the early 90s is when you start to see sampling like in a major major way right like they're they're really starting to break down like i'm thinking tribe called quest they break down lou reed's walk on the wild side um, and they use that as the background of can I kick it? And and you start to really see people grabbing from I think there were like album markets and they would just go in and grab as many albums as they could and then they would start pulling them apart and, and sampling, yeah, running them backward and forward and stuff like that. And that 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 kind of creativity is a another departure from what we have seen in in other aspects. Um and yeah. yeah. Um Cool Herc, though, he did, you know, and I don't know how much right. Tribe and all them knew or, like, you know, influenced by Cool Herc, but he, yeah, he used to take the the labels off of his records so that folks couldn't see what song he got that break from because wow. he knew his competition would go out and get it. So, you know, he marked them up in a way that only he could know what's what um, oh, because wow. he was one who would go and try to find the most obscure uh, records that had breaks in them um, to put together, but but yeah, once the drum machine came out and Run DMC and and Elo Kuja and all that, that was sort of like not really a, an art anymore. But I would agree with you with uh, Tribe and De La Soul and in the '90s era of music that wasn't trying that was trying to provide an alternative to uh, mm-hmm. the hardcore like that. That you definitely get some some wonderful musicianship there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and very. <clears throat> I guess, I guess all of it is kind of storytelling lyric at at that point though, like. Now that I think about it, because I, I don't think that's a distinction that that would be fair to make, because the gangster rap was telling stories. Oh yeah, yeah. And so, okay, so never mind that. But um, the stories that Tribe was trying to tell, the stories that Nice and Smooth were trying to tell, very different than the stories that N.W.A. and uh, you know, and and Ice T are trying to tell. Um, is is that, like you said, there's this beautiful music with the overlay of of massive violence. Um, this is obviously they're trying to, are they carving out their own niche or are they experiencing things from a different background? Are they, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, the Beatles were very much working class. The stones were very much middle class and you can hear it in their lyrics. Is, is, is that what we're seeing or are we absolutely okay? Yeah. These are guys who are from the suburbs. Um, okay. A lot of them. Folks who went off to college, um, mm. not that, you know, gangster rap folks didn't go to college. Right. Before he went to Grambling, he just got um, honored, I think, uh, some sort of legacy award for for Grambling University um, for a lot of his charity work. But in any case, um, yeah, the, those folks were folks who, who didn't grow up in in the hyper violent urban centers um, mm. dealing with with what the LAPD was bringing on people's heads a day right. in and day out. Not that they didn't have their issues uh, growing up where they grew up, but like. You know, it was it was clear in the early '90s there were some some folks who were trying to sound gangster, and they became known as studio gangsters because um, they weren't really out there living it. And mm-hmm. then there was folks like Tribe who were like, "Well, we're not even going to pretend because that's not us. Like we we have something else, and we know that um, so many people out there can relate to us more than they can relate to." Sure. Um, what's happening in South Central because South Central is one neighborhood and uh, well, collection and it was one region and um, not everybody lives there. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, you know, uh, when just just saying that part, like there's a real authenticity to tribe um, 
that there are others there are other groups that are um lacking that i will say generously uh cool okay well i think uh i don't know uh i think that's a good breakoff point maybe we could pick it back up in the next episode talking about the east and west coast rivalry because i mean that was front and center uh through the mid 90s like that 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 really seems like it was a a an important uh what do you call that ed fixed moment in time is that what who yeah if you want to get old doctor who about it yeah yeah um so maybe we could pick up with that and then and then go forward uh and see where where that takes us um so first off thank you for doing this uh for and with us um i'm i'm absolutely not adding in too much because i'm like taking notes mentally about all this stuff this is really cool um where can people find you uh and any projects that you want to publicize uh if if you want to be found or if if people are looking um sure I mean, if anybody who's interested in issues in education and what I teach or what's happening in schools could certainly follow uh, my podcast, which is about education, not not about hip hop specifically, but um, all of the above is the name of it. it. Easiest way to find it is just to go to website AOTA show and then um, click on whatever streaming app you like, because there's a lot of things out there called all of the above. Um, but anyways, AOTA show dot com. And um, yeah everything everything you need to get in contact with me if you want um, you can find it there so yeah excellent excellent and cool. uh is there anything that you are reading or you want to recommend to our audience to read yeah definitely anybody interested in anything that was discussed today definitely pick up can't stop won't stop by uh jeff chain it's sort of the definitive um history of hip-hop um but currently reading the encyclopedia of uh Tupac or the Tupac Encyclopedia um, by Michael Namikis. It, it just dropped on Amazon. Very, very great, heavily detailed read uh, for anybody who's a fan of uh, Tupac. The Tupac Encyclopedia. Very nice. Thank you. Uh, okay. Um, I think that's a good breakoff point. Everybody knows where to find me and Ed and yeah. they know when my shows are. So uh, we're going to call it right there. So uh, Dr. Rustin, thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and for Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.